Well, you have probably heard of Martin Luther, even if you're not a theology nerd or haven't been around First Baptist for a long time, you probably remember a history class at some point and hearing the name Martin Luther. Martin Luther is the uh, dubbed the father of the Protestant Reformation, which is one of the most significant events in Western history. When you think about what has shaped the Western world, the Protestant Reformation is one of those top events. And, and during the time, 1500s, 1517, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther said the doctrine of justification, so that means how we are made acceptable to God, how we are put on right standing with God. The doctrine of justification is the article, that means the key point on which the church stands or falls. The Protestant Reformation didn't create the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. It didn't create that, but what it did was it recovered it. It recovered that idea that had been polluted and shrouded by so many other teachings within the medieval Roman Catholic Church. And in a similar way, the Protestant Reformation is also credited to some degree with recovering the goodness of the doctrine of marriage. You see, early on in the history of Christianity, a false idea had crept in from pagan religions and from ancient philosophy that, that said marriage is good for the average Joe, but it's not good enough for holy Joe. That truly spiritual people are going to abstain from marriage and they're going to, they're going to treat marriage basically as below them. And so what that ended up producing within Roman Catholicism <clears throat> is a whole class of individuals who began to serve as monks or as nuns and they entered the priesthood and they, they vowed to never be married. And so as Luther started leading the way and talking about what is it that the Bible says makes us right with God. We know what the Roman Catholic Church says, but what does the Bible say? And as Luther began to, to highlight where the Church of Rome had strayed away from the teachings of Scripture and biblically faithful Christianity, he began to set his sights on this extra-biblical prohibition of marriage. Spiritual people should not get married. He began to set his sight on that as being at odds with the word of God as well. So now as Luther is writing about this, there's a letter that comes to him. And the letter is, is a joint venture of 16 nuns in a convent. And they said, we've vowed ourselves to serve the Lord. And so we entered, uh, I don't know, the nunnery. And, uh, but we're hearing what you say the Bible teaches. And we're wondering, what should we do? And Luther said, serve the Lord, get a husband, and I'm going to help you. And so 
Luther and a friend of his snuck 16 nuns out of a convent in barrels of pickled herring. And then he proceeded to get every one of them attached to an eligible bachelor so that they could enter in God's good estate of marriage. But there was one of them, Katerina von Bora, who just was proving to be quite a handful for Martin Luther. And he, he gave her three different bachelors. And the very last one, she said, I would rather marry Luther than this fellow. Now, she's probably in her very early 20s, and Luther is 42 by this point. And Luther returns home to visit his parents, and he's telling them the situation. I've, I've, I've got these nuns out, and i got them all hitched, but I've got one of them that she's really a thorn in my side. And, and the last time I tried to connect her with someone, she, she just threw it back in, in our faces, and she said, I would rather marry Luther. And his father said, you should marry the woman and give me grandchildren. And so Luther thought about it, and he decided, I'm going to marry her for three reasons. To please my father, to spite the pope and the devil, because the pope is the one who is keeping this, this doctrine uh, intact, and the devil is the one who said something God made good is not good. So to spite the pope and the devil and to seal my witness before I die, because he was pretty sure that eventually the Catholic Church was going was to catch him and cut his head off. So he decided, this is what I'm going to do. So Martin Luther, the former monk, married an escaped nun to uphold the word of God, which esteems the institution of marriage. And that's exactly what our text for today talks about as we come to part 22 in our series through the book of Hebrews. Today we're looking at just one single verse. You can turn there with me in your Bibles. It's Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. But I'm actually going to invite all of you to read this verse aloud with me from the screen this morning. <clears throat> and here's what it says. Let us read together. Nope. Go back or go down. Go next. Next slide. Go back up top. Go up. Go up. Go up. Go up. Here we go. All right. Let's read this together. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This is one of those verses that makes me hate expository preaching. Because expository preaching, preaching through old chapters of the Bible, forces you, forces you to address texts. And this will be a fun one for sure. So, to help us better understand and rightly apply what this verse says, we have to ask ourselves four questions. They are, what is marriage? What makes marriage honorable? How do we honor it? How will God deal with those who do not? 
So let's start with the question, what is marriage? In Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10, we are told of, a, of a, the same account. The religious leaders, they approach Jesus with questions about marriage and divorce in particular. And Jesus says to them, have you not read how he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus points to the creation account as the basis for marriage. In the creation account, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we are told that God created everything out of nothing. He created the cosmos. He created light. He created the earth. He, created, he separated the, the waters from the dry land. He created vegetation on the dry land. He created animals on the dry land and birds in the air, let's see, air and fish in the waters. And he created mankind in the image of God as the pinnacle of his creation. And so he told the man he created, the man Adam, to name all of the animals. And so here's an aardvark and there's two of them, a male and a female. And here is a water buffalo, and there's two of them, a male and a female. And he names the entire, all the animals of creation. And it says, but there was not found a suitable helper for Adam. That means there was not a counterpart. He was male. There was no female. There was no one like him. So the Lord caused the man Adam to fall into a deep sleep, and then he took from man a rib and he fashioned the woman and he brought her to Adam and Adam says this at last I have seen everything but this is something different this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman for she was taken out of me out of man so Jesus establishes that God established marriage and he gave it its parameters and terms here's how the Bible defines marriage should be up there marriage is a covenant relationship before God between one man and one woman as a life long union accompanied by offspring. Now, not unsurprisingly, there are a few objections to this definition, but those objections aren't all new. As a matter of fact, referring back to Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10 again, when Jesus told the religious leaders that marriage was established as a lifelong union, a covenant between one man and one woman, they had objections. They said, then why did Moses command us to give our wives a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said, because your hardness of heart. 
Moses allowed it. You see, sin is always the reason for divorce. Now, it's not divorce itself that is sin, but it is sin that separates, and it is divorce that finalizes the separation. So Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another except for sexual immorality commits adultery. You see, it's not the divorce that's the sin in that situation. It's the act of infidelity that broke the union. Falling out of love, growing apart, moving in opposite directions, losing that feeling. Those are many of the explanations we are given for why people get divorced. Those are all code for loving me more than I love my neighbor, namely my spouse. Jesus commands us to love our neighbor as ourself, which means work, self-sacrifice, and self-denial. And marriages that go the long haul require all three of these. By taking two whole people and making them one flesh, God design, God's design for marriage is that in marriage, no one person operates purely as an individual making decisions about what's best for themselves, but rather in love, decisions are made with consideration of what's best for one's spouse and what's best for the union of husband and wife. Another objection comes from the fact that we look to the Bible, particularly to the Old Testament scriptures, to form our definition of marriage. And people say, a, a covenant relationship between one man and one woman and a lifelong union accompanied by children, well, wait a minute. What about all the cases in the Old Testament that look much different from that? I mean, after all, Sarah gave Abraham her handservant, Hagar, to produce a child for their union. That certainly wasn't a one-man, one-woman union. And what about after that, you've got uh, David. David had a handful of wives. And then David's son Solomon had hundreds of wives. And actually, if you go back before that, you've got uh, Jacob. And he had two different wives at the same time. Well, what do you do with all of those? That is certainly not one man and one woman. And there are two parts to our answer to that objection, but it's, it's very simple. It's two parts, but it's very simple nonetheless. And the first part is this. Though everything contained in the Bible is for our instruction, not everything in the Bible is a command. Though everything in the Bible is for us to learn from, not everything in the Bible is telling us what we should do necessarily as in the form of a command. So the question when we read the Bible is, is it prescriptive? Is it telling me what to do? Or is it descriptive? Is it telling me what others did? Is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? So when we read that Abraham took Sarah's handservant Hagar, that is not saying, ladies, 
Go get yourself a house cleaner. And men, go hook up with the house cleaner. It is rather telling us this is what they did, but we also see what happened, right? It went very badly for everyone involved. It is teaching us this is what they did and this is how it worked out for them. It is not saying do this. It is actually saying don't do this. So the first, the first part of the answer to that objection is not everything is telling us what to do. Some of it's telling us what others did and we're to learn from their example what not to do. But the second answer is very similar to Jesus' answer to the religious leaders. Why did Moses command us to give our wives a certificate of divorce and send them away? Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart. Hardness of heart doesn't mean this angry, resentful posture of digging in our heels in unbelief. We see a story where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and after that, he sends his disciples away, and he waits. And then they're out on the waters, and there is a storm, and Jesus comes to them in the, uh, on the waters, and Jesus gets in the boat, and the wind and the waves, they all die down. And the text tells us that they didn't understand they didn't understand the loaves because, of their, because their hearts were hardened. And you're like, wait a minute. What does the wind and the waves and the storm have to do with the loaves? Jesus took things in the material world, bread and fish, and he multiplied them exponentially to feed thousands. There is no explanation other than Jesus is Lord of creation. He controls the material world. So, their hearts are hardened. They don't get that Jesus is Lord of the material world, so they don't get that Jesus walking on the water and the wind and the waves is no big deal for him, and him calming the storm is no big deal for him. And it says their hearts were hardened. It doesn't mean that they were angry and obstinate. It's just simply another way of saying they didn't believe. They didn't have faith. Their hearts were hardened by unbelief. And so when men in the Old Testament had multiple wives and even women designated for sexual relations and procreation who were not their wives, it's because their hearts were hardened. They were living in unbelief. They did not follow good, God's good design. They did not believe that God's good design was best. They were more influenced by their culture then they were influenced by scripture. They did not trust in the Lord. But perhaps the most glaring objection in our age to the definition of marriage as one man and one woman is love is love. So why can't marriage be two women? Or why can't marriage be two men? And we'll answer that question, that objection, as we look at the second question of our text, and that is, what makes marriage honorable? What makes marriage honorable? Marriage should be honored because it's a covenant. It's a covenant. And God is both a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. God delights in truth. He hates lies and deceit. He is faithful and loves faithfulness. And the Bible commends integrity and keeping one's word even when it hurts us or it costs us. 
So that's one thing that makes marriage honorable is it's making and keeping a covenant for life. And God says, that's good. That's honorable. That's what I do. I make covenants. I keep covenants. This is like me. That's a good thing. But another reason that marriage is honorable is because it's God's design. Again, back in Genesis, God makes and he says it's good. God makes and he says it's good. God makes and says it's good. And then he makes man and man is alone. And God says that's not good. And then God makes woman and he joins them together in marriage. And he says, now that's very good. God's design is very good, which means it's praiseworthy, which means we should honor it. And there's a number of other reasons that we can come up with as to what makes marriage honorable. But there is one that is paramount. And it answers the objection of why two men or two women in a relationship cannot be considered marriage, according to the Bible. Marriage tells us about God. God uses marriage to say something about himself and his plan for the world. And we don't have to be, we don't have the right to be God's editor. God is God, Adam and Eve. You are not. We are not. God is a perfect trinity or triunity. There is one God in three persons, not three parts, three persons. And those persons are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Father has a son whom he has sent into the world for a bride, which is the church, that the Father has promised to give him. And the son has given and laid down his life for his bride to purchase her out of sin and slavery to sin and to purify her for himself. And having been raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit and having ascended into heaven, the Son will someday come again to judge his enemies, but most importantly, to rescue his bride for himself. And this gathering of God's people, the church, to himself and the celebration that follows are known as the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great feast recognizing the full and final union of Christ and his bride, the church. And the restoration of all things, all things made new, including the final defeat of Satan, Satan's sin, sickness, suffering, and death, and the new heavens and the new earth, that is referred to as the consummation, another word that is related to marriage. So this is who God is, and this is what God has planned for the world. It's the story of what he's doing in the language that he has chosen to use. And Ephesians 5 tells us that every marriage that is marriage according to God's design for marriage as one man and one woman in a covenant relationship, a lifelong union accompanied by children, that every one of these marriages contains a mystery because the union of one man and one woman as husband and wife from the creation of the world is intended to be a trailer 
of the sacred story of God's plan of salvation involving Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his bride, the church. And in God's providence, he has said that two women, or two men, or one man and two women, or three men and one woman, cannot tell that story of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And because all marriages between one man and one woman are intended to give us a glimpse of that story, marriage should be viewed as a sacred union worthy of great honor. So this brings us to the third question for our text, and that is how do we honor marriage? Now consider for just a moment what it looks like to honor something. I thought about that this week. What can help us wrap our minds around what it means to honor something? And the best visual that I could come up with was the flag of the United States of America. When I was in elementary school, I visited my great aunt's church one time, and they had a Christian Boy Scouts group. And I was a first-time visitor, and they asked if I wanted to hold. They had a Christian flag and an American flag. And they asked if I wanted to hold the American flag, and I was about seven or eight years old, and I held it out like this. And in the process of doing so, the flag touched the ground, and the group leader, who was a, uh, a, a U.S. Uh, veteran said to me, son, you put that flag up in the air. Don't you ever let that flag touch the ground because men died for that flag. And I thought, I am never coming back here again. <laughs> right? Right? But touching the ground, allowing the flag to touch the ground was considered dishonorable. It did not show the proper level of respect that that flag deserved. And because of what it represents, Americans show great respect and great honor for the U.S. flag. And any perceived dishonor causes great angst. And so when people burn a flag, people are spitting mad. And when someone kneels for the national anthem, it is considered a great dishonor by many people. And when someone cleaned up the cemetery here in Ellsbury and threw away little flags that were in wreaths and they threw those in the dumpster, somebody called Fox 2 to come up and do a story on how outrageous it was that people in Ellsbury were desecrating the flag. Now, my ambition isn't to get everyone off the left field thinking about flags and political statements or issues, but I want you to consider the way that we honor the flag and the expectation we place on our fellow Americans to show the same level of respect and ask ourselves, do we show that kind of honor to marriage? Do we talk about marriage with as much honor as we talk about the flag? Do we talk about our spouses with as much honor as we show to the flag? Do we view a wedding ceremony as something as significant and as honorable as the singing of the national anthem before an athletic contest? Do we treat marriage as significant as the US flag? And do we treat the ending of a marriage as significant 
as the improper disposal of the flag. See, the Bible tells us to honor marriage by treating it as holy. That's why we call it holy matrimony. And something that is holy is uncommon. It's devoted to the Lord. It's set apart for the Lord and for his purpose. It's not for ordinary use. It's distinguished from everything else. Is that how we view marriage? There's another aspect of marriage, though, that is quite significant with regards to honoring marriage and treating it as a holy thing. And it's what our text today refers to as the marriage bed. You see, God designed sexual intimacy between a man and a woman to be the consummation of the covenant union of a husband and wife. And for sexual intimacy to be a regular part of that union as a covenant renewal with the added purpose of the creation of children. And this is the only way that God has intended for sex to work. Sex outside of marriage is like operating without a license. And our text for this morning tells us that we honor marriage as a good thing for all people by keeping the marriage bed undefiled. And there are two offenses which are mentioned here at this point in the text. And the first of those is sexual immorality, and the second is adultery. Sexual immorality is any and all sexual activity outside the confines of the marriage relationship between husband and wife. Before I became a pastor, I was a youth minister, and when I first started out in youth ministry, I was 20 years old, and I had a, 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 a youth group that was basically an outreach ministry. Most of the kids came from non church-going homes. And so uh, partly to really get their attention and partly because of my own immaturity, I was very much a shock jock youth minister. I would say things on purpose to really get their attention. And I remember one time talking at a 1 Corinthians chapter 6 on sexual immorality, which side note, when I preached that here in this pulpit, when we went through 1 Corinthians and did a very, very, very PG sermon, that was the Sunday that I got to have the talk with my oldest, who after a service said, hey, Dad, I, I, wanna, I want some definitions on, on what that word means. So parents, if you get to have the talk later today, then bless you. The Lord, the Lord be with you. So, so I remember in that youth group, teaching 1 Corinthians chapter 6 on sexual immorality, and I said, here's what that means. And I just started to go down the list of things that a guy or a gal could do or that they could do individually. And I just started to name names and call out terms. And I remember, after the fact, my own cousin saying to me, I didn't realize that all of that stuff was considered sex. I didn't realize that those things were something that also was wrong. But in fact, that's what sexual immorality is. All things outside of relationship between husband and wife in the covenant of marriage. It's not insignificant that the Greek word for sexual immorality is pornos. 
That's because sexual immorality includes viewing pornography. Viewing pornography is sexual immorality. It cheapens marriage. All sexual immorality cheapens marriage by taking a holy aspect of marriage and removing it from the body to which it belongs and treating it as a common thing to be used by just anyone. Lust is also sexual immorality and a defilement of the marriage bed. Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that if a man lusts in his heart after a woman, he's already committed that sin in his heart. So sexual activity outside of marriage between a husband and a wife or fantasizing dishonors God's good gift of sex and therefore dishonors marriage. But also bringing pornography or lust or fantasy into the marriage bed defiles it and dishonors marriage. If marital intimacy is simply a reactment, reenactment of things that have been viewed or read about, it defiles the marriage bed. Or if sexual intimacy is carried out while visualizing another person other than one's spouse, it defiles the marriage bed. Or if it is done individually without one's spouse, Engaging in sexual activity alone or with someone else, which is adultery, it defiles the marriage bed and dishonors God and one's spouse. And for the Christian, all sexual sin also dishonors our own body. And ultimately, it dishonors the church So we are, since we are members of one another by the Holy Spirit who joins us together in Christ. So the fourth question of our text today is, how will God deal with those who do not honor marriage? Our text is very clear and very frank about what God will do to the adulterous and the sexually immoral. He will judge them. God will condemn peoples whose lives are marked by patterns of adultery and sexual immorality. Those who are persistently unrepentant. He will condemn them to the everlasting torment prepared for the devil and his angels. Marriage is so holy to God, so honorable, that sexual immorality is fiercely condemned over and over again in the Bible. And it's accompanied with threats of God's wrath against the ungodly. The plain truth is sexually immoral people will go to hell. That's why Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It would be better to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than to enter into the fires of hell with two eyes. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better to enter into the kingdom of God with one hand than to enter into the fires of hell with two hands. People who are persistently sexually immoral will go to hell. And if this seems extreme or imbalanced in any way to us, it's only because we've been desensitized by the immorality all around us and we don't really understand how holy God is and how grievously offensive and evil sin is to God. Now here's something that makes no human sense. Follow me here. 
The God who designed marriage as a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman and who created sexual intimacy as part of that design to consummate and renew the covenant and produce offspring and who commands that marriage be honored by all, the God who is telling a story about himself and his son and the world through the institution of marriage, the God who condemns divorce for just any reason, the God who is fiercely against sexual immorality and who will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer by subjecting them to eternal conscious suffering and torment, this same God sent his son into the world to die for, to live and then die for, and to take the place on the cross for, and to bear his fierce wrath and judgment against sinners for people like you and me, for the dishonorable, for the divorcee, right. for the sexually immoral, right. for the ungodly, for the unholy. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, while there is still a day of judgment coming, we can be sure of that fact. While there is still a day of judgment coming, God is not willing that any of those that he in eternity past has given to his son should fail to be rescued before that day. Instead, on days like today, he calls sinners like you and me, people who otherwise deserve his judgment on account of what we've said, thought, and done, he calls us to turn from our ways and to run to Christ and to take refuge in the cross and to be rescued. The beautiful thing about Christ's rescue is that we're not just shielded from the wrath we deserve. We're cleared. We are brought in. We become part of the bride of Christ. We're welcomed into the family and we have the hope of joining in that great celebration of the marriage feast of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Maybe today you need to be commended for faithfulness. You have honored marriage. You have honored your spouse. You've been married and you have been faithful in marriage and you, you have fought the good fight. What an evidence of God's grace in your life. If you're here today and that's you, we commend you. Thank you for setting an example of faithfulness. But maybe you're here today and you need to be reminded of how God has called his people to live. He says, be holy as I am holy. And you have not. You've not kept the marriage bed undefiled. And you've not honored marriage. And you need to repent. And you need to prove that you are his by repenting and making a clean break with sin. Maybe you're here today and you realize that you are outside of the family of God. 
that, that you are on a path of destruction, getting exactly what you deserve from the Lord. You are in danger of his judgment. I have good news. There is still breath in your lungs. Your story is not yet over. Today can be the day of your salvation. Today, even now, you can admit to God that you're a sinner and loathe your sin and turn away from sin and plead for God to have mercy on you. And he will pardon you and give you new life. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your mercy. We shudder at the fact that you judge sinners because that's what we all deserve. But we thank you for your mercy that with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, your word says you are to be feared. Lord, help us to fear you, to know that you are good and loving and merciful and not to play games with sin and to turn from sin to serve Christ. Thank you for the good news of the gospel that we who are guilty can be pardoned and we can have new life and live by your power in a way that honors you.